And take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we are going to go all the way through verse 16. I did tell Brandon the wrong verses. All right, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, this is the Word of God. I, excuse me, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working, properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, ask that you would uh, now speak, not just in the reading of your scriptures, uh, but in their teaching, that we might even now hear from heaven We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. There is, some of you will know this, some of you probably not very skillful at it, but there's an art to making a very good Christmas list or birthday list. Right? There's an art to it. You know what I'm, if, you, if you, you're in the category like me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't thought about it, well, you're about to, you're about to pick up some good life lessons here. There's an art to it. It's not a science. It's an art of trying to figure out exactly how to exegete, not your desires per se, not what you want, but more so the giver of the gifts, Right? Because if you make the the birthday list or Christmas list, that's far too big. Well, how how much do you get off of it? Well, nothing. Because nobody can afford it. Nobody's going to be able to give it to you, and so they give you nothing in return. Or perhaps you, you put all the tiny little things on it. 
And so when it comes time to open presents, you've actually grossly undershot, and the people that love you and want to care for you and want to give gifts to you don't know what to give you because uh, you've put too many of those small little things. There's a, a sweetness in hitting that kind of perfect sweet spot where your desires align properly with the giver's desires so that you're able to say, hey, mom or dad, I want this thing, and that thing happens to match the desire that mom or dad have. That's when the, the, the list works best, is when you as the kind of asker, so to speak, lines up perfectly with what the giver has in mind. Well, that's important because in chapter 3, that's largely where we've ended the book of, or the chapter, uh, third chapter of Ephesians. It's with this kind of doxology, this praise, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So at this point, we have kind of this ending blessing in chapter 3 saying, our God is the giver, and he loves to give to his children. He loves to give to his children, and in fact, actually, it explains to us kind of the scope of our Christmas list or birthday list, so to speak, far more abundantly than what we can ask or think. I think the old NIV had more than you could ask or imagine. I loved that as a kid thinking, because, well, my imagination is pretty big. Our God is a God who is in the business of blessing his children so aggressively, it's more than I can imagine. That's got to be pretty big. I mean, that's got to be like really big. Because my imagination is so big, it doesn't even make sense half the time. Things that I would find desirable or enjoyable or want to own or things of the sort. Like I, I can imagine anything. And as we turn the kind of corner into chapter 4, we really then begin to ask the question, or at least the text is, what is that thing that is so big that the God who wants to give his people corporately everything, what is that target for the institutional church, for the corporate church? What in essence, as a corporate church, as an institutional church, what is the thing that's so big that it's almost beyond what you could ask or imagine but is within the range that only God himself could give? And I think if we had a, a congregational meeting in a, in a couple of months and we said, all right, we're going we're gonna to put together a, uh, a wish list, so to speak, of things we're going to pray for for the Lord, we, we could come up with a, a multitude of things, couldn't we? I mean, how many years was the top of that list? Could we have a sanctuary, God? Please provide us with money so that we could build a new building. And you know what? He did. And in fact, now actually we're in that phase where we're praying that the Lord would bless us with money so that we can pay off uh, our debt and get ready to build offices and nurseries and Sunday schools that are permanent, that are actually connected to this building so you don't have to walk across the parking lot to get your children or to drop them off in nursery. Those are reasonable requests. I mean, I think we could think of lots of things, couldn't we? I mean, it would be easy for us. Some of you might wish the temperature in here were a bit warmer. 
Some of you might wish it were a little cooler. That would be com- complicated, I guess, as we have competing ends, cross uh, uh, desires, but it's, it's okay. The interesting thing is as we get into chapter 4, Paul and the Holy Spirit and God himself actually tells us in some fashion what's at the top of the list for the institutional church. What does the wish list for the corporate church actually look like, or what should it look like? What should it be that the church is aiming to be? Now, we know her mission. It's very clear, the gathering and perfecting of the saints. We know the mechanism that she has to pursue that, word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. But what do we want to be? What what does Christ Ridge want to be in Fort Mill in 2023 going into 2024? What is that so big that it is far more abundant than all that we could ask or think? And I think for many of us, and again, you read Paul, you know the answer. I already read the passage. You already know the answer. But for many of us, if we haven't stopped and thought about it, his answer, I think, would be surprising. That out of all the things that Paul himself could put forward, out of all the things the Holy Spirit himself could put forward, the answer that we get here is unity. I think that would probably surprise most of us. I mean, we would say, well, purity of doctrine or love of Christ or love of God or faithfulness or obedience or evangelism or discipleship, and it's intriguing that all of those things are there in some fashion, but interestingly, Paul and the Spirit both anchor them as subordinate, subordinate to the unity of the church. When we go to think about, if we're going to think God's thoughts after him, if we go to think about what does the church need, at some point, it needs to be very, very near the top that the church needs unity. I mean, look, this is verses 1 through 3. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever. Amen. All right, here's that blessing. I, therefore, all right, there's your transition. Therefore, in light of that, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So live it out. Live according to this gospel calling that you've been given. Live according to uh, the way that the Lord has designed you and the call he has placed on your life. And what does that look like? Well, unity. Verse 3 ends with that, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to walk in unity. And in case you kind of already were struggling, and uh, perhaps some of us might be, to think that unity means perhaps agreement, a conformity of thinking, or perhaps a, a homogeneity of thought, or perhaps unity means forced obedience or forced agreement. Chapter 2 already, I mean, verse 2 already explains really the nature of what this unity looks like. Walking according to our calling, but walking specifically 
with all humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. What does this this unity look like? It's the unity of putting others ahead of ourselves. It's the unity of thinking of others first. It's the unity of considering their hearts, considering their emotions, considering their minds, considering their bodies, considering their person before considering your own. So that as you interact with them, you interact with them with the gentleness, the kindness that treats them with the delicacy of one who cares for them. Treats them with the endurance and patience of one who adores them and understands them. Who's willing to bear their burdens with them and walk beside them carrying heavy loads when called to do so, the unity of a body, of, of a people that are built together. Now already, as a, a kind of cultural moment in 2023, we've, we've run up against a difficulty because this flies directly in the face of the American individualism that I've been trained to, to kind of love and breathe in. Right, I've been trained by the culture I've lived in and I've been trained by my entertainments and I've been trained by my moment in time and history to believe that I am the center of the universe. I've been trained to believe that I am the center of all reality and I have been trained by the world in which I live in that my feelings are the most important thing inside reality. The problem is that not only are my feelings not the most important thing in reality, is that those blessings of God, those uh, Lord's provisions far more than we can ask or imagine, those things are actually me caring for somebody's emotions more than my own. Caring for somebody else's hurts more than my own. Caring for somebody else's wants and needs and desires more than... It's caring for others. Now the reality reality is that it feels good for me to think that I'm the center of the world. Well, at least for a short time it feels good. Eventually the weight and the burden gets too heavy and it makes me crazy. But in the short term it makes me feel good to think that I'm that important that the entirety of the world revolves around me and all of you are supposed to revolve around me as well. But it's interesting, that's, that's, that's me misreading the size of the gift that God gives. He gives unity, a unity that is founded in thinking of others more highly than myself. Already, and probably is a little bit, in some sense, a bit of a rebuke for those areas in our lives where we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, using scriptural language, 
Those areas of our lives where we think of our pains, we think of our feelings, we think our own thoughts, we think of our self more than others. Certainly opportunity for repentance. Now, there's a great reality that, okay, if we're going to have this unity, it's not going to be easy. I mean, if we're going to be honest, humility is not easy. It doesn't feel good. It's not fun. Gentleness, well, um, this is easier to be harsh with people. Let's be honest. Patience, I don't really like patience. Praying for patience is pretty much the best way to make sure everybody around me is irritating. Bearing with one another in love, I don't want to bear others' burdens. I want everybody else to bear my burdens. Maybe I don't want that kind of unity. Maybe I just don't really want that kind of unity. Maybe I just want selfishness instead. (laughs) Maybe I just want self-centeredness instead. Well, interestingly, the command here, walk in this manner, walk in unity, walk in this building up of the body together, he then gives reasons. Why? Why should I do that? Why should you do that? Why should we labor for this kind of unity knowing that it's hard? And it hurts and it it requires me to put my own wants, needs, and desires significantly further down the list of what's important. Why would I do that? Well, two reasons, both in the text, obviously. The first reason is this type of unity is the outworking of our new nature and relationships. This type of unity is the outworking of our new nature and relationships. Basically, what's happening is if you behave according to your new nature, you will become unified. Look at what happens, right? Verse three, uh, I want you to walk in a manner worthy uh, of your calling specifically to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Well, because there is one body. All right, so when we go to talk about the church, we're not talking about individual bodies. We're not talking about individual pieces. There's one body, one church. That's the reality. That's the essential nature of the church. That one body is united by the one Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells. Just as you were called to the one hope, that's the one gospel that God has provided. Chapter 2 has laid that out. United under one Lord, Christ who is head of the church, sharing one faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, uh, participating in one baptism, the baptism of the people of God, even united under our one God and Father, the triune God, uh, here being reflected the unity of the Trinity that is our God, who is over all and through all and in all. We're, we're behaving according to the reality of what we are. We're behaving according to the reality of what we are. It's like um, <clears throat> those people that sometimes you can kind of hear a daydream or whatever, and they're like, you know what, I'd love to, I'd love to have a really, fan, I'd love to have a Ferrari. I'd love to own a Ferrari. It'd be fun to drive a Ferrari. And I'm like, you know what, it would be fun to drive a Ferrari, but I already can tell you right now, if somebody gave me a Ferrari, what would happen? I can go ahead and tell it to you right now. One of two things. Either I would be taken to prison, or two, I would be dead. Why? 
Because a Ferrari is designed to go 228 miles an hour on a straightaway. And you know what? It wants to go fast. And you know what? It would be really hard to say, I think I'm going to drive this 25 in my neighborhood. Because I want to know. It's going to want to drive 225 in my neighborhood. And it's going to take a lot of work to get it to behave against its nature. Right? That car has an engine the size of a house. It wants to fly. You touch the gas and it's, it's gone. That's how they're made. It wants to behave according to the type of thing it is. It's made to be this wild sports car designed to go fast. It wants to do that. You touch the gas and it will. You in Christ are made to be a creature of humility. You're made to be a creature of gentleness. You're made to be a creature of kindness. You're made to be a creature of obedience. You're made to be a creature that looks for the needs of others more than the needs of themselves. We're designed for that task. It's part of our very nature. It's part of who we are, and we are by nature unified with one another. And unified with God himself. So when we actively undermine these uh, attributes, when we actively undermine the unity of the Spirit in this place, when we actively undermine the bonds of peace, well, it's, it's like taking the machine and forcing it to behave a way it's not designed to do. It's like taking your lawnmower and deciding that you're going to try to break up the rocks in the back of your yard with it and just running them over the rocks. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say your lawnmower's not going to like that after a couple of rocks, is it? Eventually you're going to knock your blade off and maybe into your shin and cut your foot off perhaps. I'm not sure, but it's not going to go well for your lawnmower. It's not going to go well for you because it's against the way it was designed to operate. Because of our very nature, we are already one body, We are already under one head, Christ Jesus. We are already participants in one faith. Now, interestingly, I love this. This is not talking solely about the church that is alive now. Well, I mean, all of the church is alive now. But it's talking about the saints that are alive in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, I mean, those that are already dead, sorry, the dead who are already alive in Christ in uh, in God already. It's talking about those that are alive now, and in fact, weirdly enough, even talking about those that will be yet to come. There's one church. This is the weird part for us to kind of contemplate that our very nature is one body so that we are already united currently with those that do not yet exist and united with those that already do and are dead and are already residing with God himself. One body, one church, one Lord. By nature, we are united. When our brothers and sisters are the martyrs that suffer in other parts of the world, we suffer with them, whether we like to or not. We can't not, because it's already an aspect of our nature. So why, why should we pursue this unity? Well, you should pursue this unity because it's the way you're designed to be. You're already in union with all of these dear people around you. You should be pursuing unity with them because that's what the design is. You're the Ferrari that's meant to be driven a certain way. 
The lawnmower that's meant to cut certain things, use it the way it's designed to be used. And you might say, well, Michael, that's, that's too big of a task. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I might be able to do it if people weren't so irritating. Honestly, I might be able to, I might be able to do it if people weren't so irritating or weird, one of the two, maybe both, I'm not sure. If only I was equipped better, better equipped, if, if I had more patience, if I had more humility, if I had more gentleness, maybe I could do it then. Well, actually, that's exactly where it heads in the text, isn't it? All right, verse five, one faith, one baptism. Verse six, one God, one Father of all is over all, through all, and in all. Verse seven, but you can't use that excuse that the Lord's not giving you the gifts that you need to do it. You can't say, well, not me, somebody else. Why? Because grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, this is interesting. As as Christ is head of the church, he then gives gifts to all of his people. You have to do a little bit of kind of deconstructing some of the wacky teaching from the 80s or 90s that some of us sat under. Uh, the, the, The moment you become a Christian, you are given gifts, a multitude of them. You're given faith and repentance from the very beginning. Those are gifts that uh, the, the Spirit of God brings about in your life. But then also you're given other unique gifts on top of that. Those gifts are in some form or fashion, uh, the, the patiences and the gentlenesses and the kindnesses and the obediences that you're given. They're all kind of gifts of the Spirit, gifts given by Christ to his church. Everyone has them. Some of them are very noticeable. Some of them are not. Some of them may be dormant for years and not discovered until later. And interestingly, some of them might be taken away. But they belong to Christ, and he's the one who gives them. And in fact, actually, verse 8 is the explanation of this. This is where he then quotes Psalm 68 with a kind of one massive change in the text here. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then 9 and 10 explain the change that he then does from the original quote in Psalm 68, which is in essence this. Jesus is the victor and head of the church. He conquered the grave by being submissive to it. He conquered death and hell by being submissive to them. And when he ascended, when he rose and then ascended into glory, he, he as a result, has all of the, the gifts and graces of God. He has all of the authority of God. And as a result, as being king of the Lord of the church, he can give whatever he wishes to whomever he wishes. Uh, this is kind of using the language of conquest and like a, a Roman army of the armies of that time. The way that you paid soldiers, and they had a minimal wage that they were paid, kind of a standing minimal wage, but the best way to pay them was to go conquer somebody. And once you conquered the, other, the bad guys, you took all of the bad guys' stuff and then you divided it up between your soldiers. And they got the gifts of conquest. And who divvied it up? Well, the higher the commander, the more they got to divvy it up between uh, their people around them. And we see this, right, in pirates and all those sorts of things, right? That uh, pirates go and steal all the stuff from the, the good guys. You take it back on the pirate ship, and then the captain helps divvy it up between everybody. What's happening here in verse 8 is to say that Jesus, because, verse 9, he descended into uh, the grave, he remained under the power of the grave for a time, but in verse 10, he didn't just stay dead, he was raised and ascended far above the heavens into the uh, very throne room of God, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is the one who then has the right, the ability, and all of the resources to give gifts to mankind. 
So why is it that we should be pursuing unity? Well, one, because it already matches the nature that we have, but two is that Christ himself is equipping us for the task of unity. He's giving you everything that you need to pursue that unity. He gives us the gifts. And oh, look, verse 11, here are some of what those gifts might look like. He gave the apostles. That was awesome. They saw Jesus. They don't exist anymore, the prophets. The evangelists, shepherds, pastors, teachers, specifically to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He gives gifts. Now, this is a fun thing to think about, these gifts that God gives, is that he is in the business of equipping his people for ministry. Now, we've, in the pastoral offices here, had a significant conversation about this in the last handful of weeks, haven't we? In that we've been able to say, uh, who owns the church? Well, Jesus Christ is head of the church. He's head of the church as a whole, but he's head of the church as an individual. So who's head of Christ Ridge? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is head of Christ Ridge. And as a result, who is responsible for providing the pastors of Christ Ridge? At the end of the day, who is responsible for providing the pastors of Christ Ridge? Well, Jesus, because it's his church. And pastors are legitimately in the list of gifts that he gives in verse 11. He's the one who gives them. Well, now what's required for a man to be a pastor? Well, you saw in my email on Saturday that at least kind of three things, an external call, people that want you to go pastor, two, the abilities to pastor, and three, the desire to pastor. And interestingly, all three of those gifts are given by the Lord Christ. And they're given to the men that belong to the Lord Christ. And nowhere does it say those specific gifts are guaranteed to last a lifetime. In fact, actually, there's many times we see it all throughout the scriptures where he equips people for a certain task for a season and then sends them to another task that's wonderfully helpful and wonderfully holy. It's my favorite part there in um, the book of Acts where you have the Ethiopian eunuch traveling back to the south, and he gets evangelized, and we talk a big deal about how the Lord kind of takes up this evangelist, sends him out to the middle of nowhere so that the Ethiopian eunuch will run into him, and then he, you know, is converted. But you forget that actually the God, the man that God pulls out to evangelize that Ethiopian eunuch is the most successful evangelist in the world at that time. He is the only guy that is out there having great yields and great harvest, and the Lord sends him out into the middle of nowhere. And if you're in the early church and you saw, like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? This guy is the best, and you're sending him out into the boonies. What are you doing? Hmm, That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And then you find out from the book of Acts, it's like, oh no, I had a soul there that I wanted to convert. One. And that man was valuable enough to send my best servant into the middle of nowhere to do a task. 
The gifts and the calling belong to Christ, and as a result, he can give them, he can take them away, he can use them as he sees fit. And do we get mad about that? No. Do we panic about that? No. Do we get jealous about that, that some people have more gifts than others? No, because all of these gifts belong to the Lord. I remember in some of my studies reading many of the Puritans that used to talk about preaching, and they would talk about the Spirit of God showing up in their preaching, and I can't remember the gentleman's name. It's been, I don't know, a long time since I've read this, but it was a Welsh preacher that woke up one morning and realized that the Spirit of God had come upon him. And he went into the pulpit that morning knowing that the power of God with him, and he preached a sermon that was life-altering. And the body was changed and people were converted and people were overwhelmed by the grief of their sin and the beauty of Christ and transformation took place and he went home and was moved. And the next Sunday he went in and the same thing happened and then the same thing happened and the same thing and he preached that way for years until one day he woke up and it was gone. And he knew it. It was weird reading his kind of record of it as he woke up on a a Sunday morning. Preparation had been no different. The body was no different. The man was no different. He woke up and walked to the church, and as he walked, he knew, I don't have that power anymore. The Lord has closed that season of ministry for me. And he spent the rest of his ministry preaching to people that weren't radically changed, a message that was identical but with no harvest, no yield, no fruit, The revival had ended, and that season of his life had changed. And you know what? At the end of the day, he had to say, it's it's the Lord's gift. I'm not in charge of that. It's Christ that controls his church. Interestingly, we have the unity of the body, we have the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that is then worked out. Why? Well, because it's according to our new nature, this union that already exists in verses four through six. It's also an outworking of the gifts that Christ himself gives to his church in verses seven through 11. But this unity then becomes the springboard for something else. It's interesting that it's not the end goal as much as it's the foundational goal. That that unity becomes in verses 12, 13, and 14, the basis for the church being built up. All of these gifts, verse 11, are given specifically to, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, not to equip the pastors, Not to equip the apostles, not to equip the prophets, evangelists, or shepherds. It's to equip the saints, the body, for the work of ministry, specifically for the building up of the body, the whole body. And to build up the whole body as a whole together, everybody participating until we all together attain this unity. Oh my goodness, look, the unity becomes the foundation for ministry for greater unity. The unity of the faith and then even further the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the fullness of Christ. Even being built up so much that we have the maturity that makes us stable and strong. 
dependable and reliable and true. So that we're no longer like children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, carried about by every human cunning, carried about by every crafty, deceitful scheme. We're built up to something. Historically, we would have called that maturity, wouldn't we? I guess maybe today our culture might call it boring. To be reliably stable, dependable, trustworthy, and true. Now, I think this is where the unity becomes so important. Because the process of maturing is it's not easy, actually. And again, particularly if those of you in the room have maybe as much gray hair as I do, or more gray hair, or perhaps less hair, you might be far enough down your path in life that you, you might have forgotten that when you were young, the freedom and chaos felt good and was desirable for a season. Right? It's part of the marks of youth is to be that kind of chaotic, insane, ah, out there kind of thing and, and to find joy in that. Right? As we, we see it happen with little kids where they go, you know, tearing, running through as fast as they can through spaces that make their parents kind of clench up and be like, are they going to hit the coffee table? Oh, are they going to fall over and hit the hearth? Who's going to be bleeding and where are they going to be bleeding from by the time this is over? That's why little kids, if you're not careful or don't teach them, they'll go, you know, pick up the sharpest thing they can find and go chasing after a brother or sister to go pretend stab them and process perhaps actually real stab them. Right? All, all, all of the chaos and all of the insanity of youth is perceived as fun for a season. And the maturing process, though ultimately in the long run, is far more joyful, far more delightful, far more pleasing. Now, it takes some work, doesn't it? All right, well, what is Christ doing? He's building up his body into maturity, into this strength, into this stability, into this dependability. Well, how does he do that? Well, there's a couple of mechanisms that I think are built in here to help it all happen. Now, verse 15, I love how this one starts. What are some of the mechanisms to see this take place? Well, if you're going to do this, you have to learn to speak the truth in love. And there's two parts to this clause that are both equally important. Everybody in the room loves one half of the clause more than the other. Speaking the truth in love. Either you love the truth and kind of have the old historic kind of damn the torpedoes, I don't really care what follows mentality. Or you love the in love part so much that you maybe soften the blow so much that you never actually speak the truth. Right? The uh, speaking the truth part, you, you sit down at lunch and uh, the meal is served and it's absolutely dreadful. The speaking the truth person sits there and goes, man, this is absolutely dreadful. And you know what? They're not wrong. It's terrible. It's terrible. And the cook looks over at the in love person and says, well, what did you think of it? And they say, well, I kind of liked it. Now, is that true? No, not at all. 
Or maybe if you're in a really bad situation, you may say, well, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Now, what does that translate to? Well, it's dreadful. But I'm not, I'm cushioning the blow so much that I'm not really even speaking the truth anymore, am I? I love that if we're going to pursue unity as a body, there's this kind of schema to help us understand, okay, if we're going to do this, the way that we speak to each other is incredibly important. And it all gets anchored back really at the beginning of this passage of saying, look, the unity that we are pursuing is considering others better than ourselves because Christ Jesus has redeemed us as a people because we belong to Christ and he's given me the gifts to do that. So if that's the case, even the words that I use have to be chosen with the other person's best interests at heart. Even the words that I use. I'm trying to figure out how to speak in a way that ministers to those around me. Let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word as is useful for the edification of others according to the need of the moment. Building one another up. Now again, this is where we kind of run into our our problems in our current moment in time, our current kind of cultural moment where it says, you hear things like, well, I just have to live my truth. Gag. Or, it's my right to share my opinion. Wrong. No, it's not your right. Your opinion only has the right to be shared if it is useful for building others up according to the needs of the moment. Everybody in this room has opinions that in the most holy of worlds should never see the light of day. You have them, I promise. I do too. That the way that opinion is best exercised is in silence and in mortification being kill it, kill it with fire. Right? It doesn't need to, it's not helpful, it's not useful, it's not building up. Instead, rather, I need to be busy thinking about how do I minister to my neighbor? My brother or my sister that is hurting next to me, how can I lift them up? How can I make their day better? How can I build them up or strengthen them? How do I do that? By speaking the truth, and how do I do it in a way that's loving? I, I suspect there's also the element here of if you're going to pursue true unity, as Christ has designed this for his church, there is always going to be a presence of, of conflict resolution. In fact, actually, I think, having done pastoral ministry now quite a long time and done marriage counseling for who knows how long, much longer than that, The couples that have the healthiest marriages are not the couples that argue the least. It's the couples that argue the best. That's really what I've learned. It's not the couples that argue the least. In fact, actually, those are almost always the ones that end up in trouble. Those are the ones that end up in my office and usually about six months too late. It's not the couples that argue the least. It's the couples that argue the best. Where each party is actively trying to figure out How do I speak what is true, but speak it in a loving way to the other party so that they are built up, so that they are strengthened, so that they are made new? Look at where it goes in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. 
in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're not growing into speak your truth, not growing into live your dream, not growing into, well, my feelings are king. The truth, when engaged correctly, leads us into Christ. Growing into his headship, growing into his rule, growing into his reign, and doing that, verse 16, collectively, collaboratively as the body of Christ. We're, we're being built up into the head of his Christ, but we're doing it from the whole body. From whom, from Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that when we begin to do this, what happens is not just that you grow individually, but that we grow corporately. So that we grow corporately. And I love, (laughs) I love, that what we actually have here, this is my favorite, is a paragraph explaining to how to handle complaints with your church. Right? Again, if you're going to be honest, everybody has them at some point in our lives where we get uh, disgruntled about something, get a bee in our bonnet about something, get frustrated about something. And it's interesting that this really is, in some ways, kind of the paragraph, the manual of how to deal with it. One, to consider others better than myself. Two, to recognize that we are organically united in Christ Jesus. Three, to figure out how to utilize my gifts as best I can to participate in building up the church. And four, even as I learn to speak the truth in love, I use those gifts and my mouth in a way that builds others up. I love that it's, such, it's framed from such a positive perspective, isn't it? Learning to build each other up. Now, it would be easy for us to complain. It would be easy for us to get bitter. It would be easy for us to get cantankerous and grumpy. It would be easy for us to be nasty to each other. It's our natural default state as sinners. But interestingly, here's something else framing it out. Being united in love. And as much as we might like to joke about it, If we're really going to be honest, that's the kind of church that we all want to be a part of. Right, isn't it? I mean, the the kind of church that when you walk in those doors in the back, that the people that you see are looking out for you to build you up and to make you stronger. And that they're willing to use their energies and the gifts that Christ has given them to build you up and to equip you to know Jesus more. Not simply to affirm you in the status that you're in, but to grow together in godliness. I suspect, as we go forward from this season, certainly in the next handful of months, probably through the rest of the year, we're going to have great opportunity to put this into practice. there's, There's no real kind of thing that was so successful at making a body grumpy as losing a beloved pastor and having to replace him with another. Oh boy, you want to see a church get divided? That's an easy way to do it, isn't it? 
I'm on team Brandon. I don't want him to go. Well, I am on team Brandon. I don't want him to go. And then when we find a new guy, am I going to be on that team too? Or am I going to be at odds with you and you be at odds with me? Or are we going to be that body that figures out, how, how can I use the short life that God has given me to spend it to make your life better? Because Christ makes us new. Perhaps when we look back on this season in a couple of years, we will look at it and go, look at what God did, making the unity of the body, the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. Now, the fun thing is, I know that can happen. And you know how I know that can happen? It's because that's actually the way that we speak about how that man got hired the first time, isn't it? And that's how Brandon got hired. That's how he even made it here in the first place. I was mostly dead in the hospital. Y'all hired, uh, you, you elected a pulpit committee without me. You found a guy, you, hired, you did it all without me. And it was all done in unity and peace and joy and serving one another. I hope two, three, four years from now when we look back on this season, we're able to say the same thing. And in doing so, give all glory to King Jesus because it's his church and all encouragement to each other because we love each other so much. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to our lives. Uh, Providentially, you had it ordered. This would be the next passage in the book of Ephesians that we would come to. And wow, is it pertinent. And would you then, we ask humbly, that you would make us unified and that our service would be increased because of it. For Christ's sake, amen.